This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, even though we talked for about 45 minutes last week, I didn't really get a sense that I know what's going on in your life other than the trauma involving social media. That doesn't really impact your life, but it, it's impacting the lives of others. So is anything going on at the farm that, that I might be able to relate to? <laughs> Nothing that you'll be able to relate to, but certainly <laughs> stuff that you'll be able to laugh at. <laughs> so I can't remember if I talked about it here or if I just put pictures on Facebook. But I got more goslings. And... The story of these goslings is that these are the ones that I wanted from the beginning, all the way back when I first got Francis and then got Francis, her babies, who are very big now, by the way. I got these goslings. I, I wanted these goslings, but they're, they're hard to come by. And I knew somebody in Dallas, Fort Worth had them, but they were very expensive. So I figured I should probably practice on the cheap ones first. <laughs> so I finally got these goslings and they're about... About about three and a half weeks ago. And I, I tried giving them to Francis. It did not go well. Um, so I ended up having to be goose mom. And so I have them in this little pen that is plenty big for them. And it's where Francis used to go in to lay her eggs. But the first time I tried to give her the goslings, she bit one. And that was the end of that. And I kicked her out and I gave them this pen. And it's gone great, no issues. But around this same time, I have stopped supplementing the feed for my chickens, which is something they don't need. They just like because there's so much area for them to just scratch and go forage. And if I feed them, they lay more eggs. I can't eat that many eggs. So I want to be paying for something that I can't use anyway. So I'm like, go, go away, go feed, go, go scratch. They're, they're clearly fine. They're not starving. They look great, but they're lazy. And whenever they don't have feed, anytime someone steps out of the house, anytime anyone even pulls up in a car, like a delivery person, the chickens mob them because they're like, Food, food, somebody give us easy food. And I say no, and I shoo them off and send them on their way. So they will, if, when the dogs get fed, they will mob the dogs to try and get the food out of their dog bowl because that's very high protein and they love it. And the dogs chase them off and it's just this constant game of how many chickens can you chase off while you're trying to eat your dinner. But... What they've also learned is that when I feed the goslings, there's food. And chickens can't fly fly, but they can fly up over fences, you know. And so anytime I feed the goslings now, there will be chickens that let themselves into that pen 
And the chickens are bigger than the goslings still, and they kind of chase them off away from the food. And it took me a while to realize what was happening, because I prefer to, the goslings should always have food. Like, they should be able to free feed that, because they're, they're grazers or whatever. But the chickens were eating all their food. So I, um, I was like, okay, fine. So now I feed them at night, like after the sun has gone down, I just load up their food so that, and I keep a light on so they can eat whenever they want through the night because the chickens won't, they'll be asleep. But in the morning when I come back out, fill their water, do everything again, the chickens are going to try and mop them. So my mornings have now turned into half an hour to a 45 minutes standing outside the gosling pen with a old broken, like, you know, one of those sprayers that you, the, the reach, the tall sprayers that you hook onto a, a hose to kind of extend spray up high. It's broken. Uh-huh. I use it as a chicken beating stick. <laughs> <laughs> every, every time like they try and get it, they'll fly up onto the fence. I'll knock them off. Right. So I, I use the time like, okay, I'll, I'll use the time to either read news or do my practice sessions on Duolingo or whatever. It's outside standing there beating chickens off the fence. If God so help me, I turn my back. There's like eight of them just circling, waiting. And the minute I turn my back, they start creeping forward. They're like, she's, she's not looking, she's not looking. And they make a rush for the, for the, for the pen. And it's just become this game of whack a chicken every morning to try, to try and give the goslings enough time to get a good meal in their bellies and i'll stay there until they just kind of stop eating stop drinking and they just kind of lay down and start grooming themselves and i'll i'll get up and i'll move the food so the chickens won't eat at all and uh yeah so <laughs> whack a chicken that's my new game <laughs> okay sounds like uh something we should trademark whack a chicken <laughs> <Whack-a> chicken. <laughs> i'm not hurting them okay i'm just they know better and it's like knocking them off the fence but not not enough to hurt them and as soon as they see me coming like if they're making a making an advance towards that fence towards the pen and i turn around they run the other way because they know exactly what's going to happen they just think that they're smarter than me and they're not because they're dumb a couple of weeks ago we did a, a show called a series of random insights into storytelling that was very well received and I had a really good time doing it and it turns out that you do have some more of these memes that we can kind of mine for storytelling information yes and I really enjoyed that show too because I love being able to offer good advice and I didn't have any of my own. (laughs) I'm advised out. Guys, I need your material. I need you to send me questions. I can't help you if I don't know how I'm supposed to be helping you. And since I am only working on my own stuff right now, it's not the type of thing that I just like have a lot of content for teaching you how to do stuff. So please, if you've got material, if you've got questions, if there's anything I can help you with, send it to me. Otherwise, we're going to keep doing more shows like these where I get to give you other people's advice. (laughs) We discuss other people's advice. Yes. Which is fun. So this one, I don't know how it ended in, in my feed. It's it's from a different person. Um, from C. Robert Car- Cargill, I guess. It just kind of got retweeted into my timeline, and I thought, oh, this is really good, and it's about editing, right? Now, keep in mind, most of these are about screenwriting. So they're specifically tailored towards screenwriting, but 
novel writing and screenwriting do have a lot of things in common. So this one says, when editing your work, ask yourself after each scene, what did this scene change? What choice did my characters make that further defines them? Would I be missing any information needed later to tell the story if I cut it? Can I make this scene do more than one thing? And I, I thought that's really insightful because a lot of times when editing your own work, you can get hung up, like as you get so close to the forest, you don't see the trees. What you're editing is making it different, but it's maybe not necessarily making it better. So if you're asking yourself those questions, like, or he's saying, ask it after each scene change, but I would be asking it to myself during the scene change. What am I changing? Why am I changing it? What choices are my characters making in this scene that's further defining them? And because when we've talked about this from the hack the craft angle on the show, we say that um, every scene has to serve a purpose and it's about character, right? And if the scene is not establishing character, showing conflict or moving the plot forward, then it doesn't belong. So this is focusing on the characters. The character aspect of it is what choice did my characters make that further defines them? And where the way that I would reword that for myself is, you know, is the, are the choices the characters making in this scene defining them? Like, are they there for, for a reason or, or are they just there? Right. Because if they're not serving a purpose, they don't belong. And then this part of it was really, really important. Would I be missing any information needed later to tell story if I cut the scene? Because a lot of times we put stuff in, well, A, either thinking that we might need it later, or B, we're not really sure why. But every scene needs to serve a purpose. So as you're going back and you're editing it, and you already have your sort of a sense of your first draft or whatever, then you can be asking yourself, is the material that's in this scene, if I cut it, would I be missing information later? And if the answer is no, then why is it there? And then he asks, can I make the scene do more than one thing? And that's how you get that sort of depth of story is when there's multiple things going on. It's not busyness. It's not like you're just throwing everything at the kitchen sink it's that the scenes are serving more than one purpose at the same time. So if you can find a way to integrate, like further integrate theme into the dialogue or deepen the dialogue by giving it a subtext that will play out later, or you're adding foreshadowing to something, those are all different ways that you can have a scene carry double duty. And when you have scenes carrying multiple purposes like that, you just end up with this greater sense of story weight, this greater depth of story that makes it richer kind of like the difference between you know a simple angel food cake or a very rich um you know let's say italian cream cake right it's just got so much more going on in it and and that's that's what having a scene doing more things to it can do so that's my take on that all right now you've you've mentioned during various podcasts that your tendency is to write long. So is that you putting in extra things that you think you might need later? I think it's me putting stuff that comes to mind in and, and getting a little wordy and over explanation. Like I, I get too, I go too far into the characters analyzing why they're doing what they're doing. But the process of that is helping me clarify it in my own head. So 
when I come back through it again, I will whittle that down into its essence exactly as much as is needed to communicate and try not to do much more than that. Um, or I'll do too much description or too much, maybe a scene is part of the moving from here to there that could be safely cut. Um, but I didn't, it, it felt like it needed at the time, things like that. Okay. So what's our next little tidbit of question? Tidbit okay, of questions. So That's an absurd one... way of putting it. What, <laughs> what's our next <laughs> meme? <laughs> the next one actually comes far outside the writing advice sphere. And it was written by somebody that I don't even think I follow them anymore, but they are part of the open source information community, which is fascinating. If it, I find it such a valuable uh, a resource for the work that I do in the types of stories that I tell. Open source is um, it's intelligence work, but it's done by people who do not have access to the databases and the um, security stuff that the governments have. And I've watched tutorials of how people in that community can track down an exact pinpoint on the map of where a photo was taken based on following specific clues in the photos and things like that. And, and a lot of it is comes from like a lot of those clues come from outside the photos by understanding the psychographic profile of the person you're trying to find. And all of this is very useful to me because it, it it's research, right? For how my characters do what they do. And it's just background understanding of things that help put sort of a layer of reality into whatever, especially the work, the one, the project that I'm working on right now. So anyway, this person, I, I thought it was very astute because he's talking about psychology and psychology ties into character building, right? And he says, people tell you so much more than just the things they say. Reading people isn't that hard. Listen to them. If you're good, they tell their entire life story without saying a single damn word. And it's, it's, it's so true, but it's, it's very fantastic, I thought, character insight. Um, for the ways in which you can communicate what a, what a character understands about another other character by applying that same principle of really listening and applying, like having one character really listen to what the other character is saying. It's a dialogue, a dialogue lesson. It's a character lesson. It's how to create subtext by really understanding what it is your character is seeing in the other person that allows you to deepen that sort of character environment. Don't know that I'm entirely making sense in how I'm saying it, but when I read this, I was just like, that is character right there. That is understanding how dialogue works in, in fiction. People tell you so much more than just the things they say. Reading people isn't that hard. Listen to them. If you're good, they tell their entire life story without saying a single damn word. And they tell it in their body language and in their facial expressions and the way they react to what you're saying and the way they act to the world around them and their movements. There's just so much there that's easy to forget when you're writing dialogue because 
it's much easier just to say the things that come out of people's mouths than it is to observe or create what your character is observing. But this is unintentionally very good writing advice. If you were using this advice in a uh, let, let's say a character had met was had would, had just met someone and was having a conversation with them, how how much of of the of that insight would you have going through your character's mind as the dialogue is taking place? Well, it entirely depends on where you're guiding the story, right? That's the beautiful thing about being the creator of this universe is you know where it needs to get. So you're going to guide this according to your own needs so that the reader has what they need to, to build the picture. And so it's incredibly situational, both to the characters that are on the page, the story that you're trying to tell, to the voice that you're using in telling it. But if you were to do it, like, say, something similar to the type of work that I do, you know, you you have those observations exist in the character's head as as reading so you know you're just you, you you a stranger walks into the room the character already has an objective of what they want from that stranger but doesn't know much about them they're going to start looking at their shoes their clothing their posture how much is that is that an expensive suit what are they carrying are they are they furtive? And you you winnow that down, you know, the glances, the where their attention is going, how good that other person is, how other people are reacting to them in the room. All of that tells you so much about a person. And you winnow that down, the the the, the inner narrative of your own character to the essence of what your character needs to know right? What the reader needs to know. So you don't throw in a bunch of stuff that maybe they're observing that is unimportant because that's going to clutter up the page. You put down what they observe that's getting you to the point that you're trying to get to, that you're leading up to. Okay. All right. Well, what is our next meme? Okay. This one is from Scott Myers Count. It says, you want drama? Ask a character, what do you fear most? Put them in a story where they have to confront that fear. Hmm. I mean, that's basic story writing conflict mm-hmm. right there. But I I mean, that is very, very, very narrowly specific advice. I, I take that and interpret it a step further to more generally, you apply it as you've always got to know what your characters fear, their deepest fears. What is it they're afraid of? Because that's the un- that's the subconscious stuff. And we, as humans, we react on two levels. We, re- we react to logic and we react to the information around us in sort of a, um, a processing thinking type way. We react to our inner world in an emotional type way that doesn't always make sense. But that's where the real characterization comes out. So if you know what your character is afraid of, even if that's not really the entire part of the story or it's not, you know, the story isn't about what that character is afraid of, you still have the possibility of, you have an opportunity to deepen the character, to deepen situations by 
knowing what they fear, even if the character themselves hasn't ever addressed it. And it keeps that character consistent and um, very human, I guess you could say. Interesting. As you were as you were talking about that, I was I was thinking of the times in which I'd read books where early on you find the character has a phobia about this or a, a great fear of that. And you just know that by the end of the book or at the climax of the book, there's going to be a fight that takes place underwater if they're afraid of water right. or, or, you know, the something on the edge of a cliff if they're afraid of heights and it just it almost sucks the life out of it when you yeah, when you see that very, it's it's so obvious it feels very heavy-handed and mm-hmm. almost cliche i think the type of fears that we're talking about here is maybe like a fear of abandonment a fear of um never being good enough a fear of uh parental of of not being worthy of parental love a fear of uh, being exposed as a fraud because you yourself don't believe you're competent, the imposter syndrome, right? A fear of uh, rejection. Like these are all really deep-seated fears that not everyone has all of them, but when we do have them, it's usually brought about by something that happened when we were very young Um, or something traumatic, Uh, we may or may not remember it. We may not even be aware of why we're responding the way that we're responding, but it causes us to do things that are perceptively irrational and sometimes not in our own best interest, contrary to our own best interest, because they're subconscious, right? So the very, very obvious fears, like, you know, always afraid of drowning or whatever, even when it's all tied into a very obvious traumatic moment in childhood when the person almost drowned, it's just not going to have the same kind of emotional um, punch or emotional driving force as a fear that runs much deeper than that, if that makes any kind of sense. It does make sense. I, I, I was listening to a book, or I am listening to a book, and the character, I mean, it, it's as though you were describing it. The character has been, this is like the eighth book in the series, and the character is behaving abnormally throughout the book. And it's, it's just like, what is going on with this person? Why, why is this person doing, making the choices uh, that they're making? And then about halfway through the book, you, and maybe I missed this earlier on, but all of a sudden you realize there's some part of a relationship with someone that has broken and it needs to be repaired before they can get back to their normal self. And that came right out of left field. And I really enjoyed it when I realized what was happening and why that was happening. And it's, it's sort of like what you described. I thought it was kind of cool. Yes. Yes. And I just kept asking myself, and probably this writer is skilled enough. There were probably hints there in the beginning that I could have caught, uh, but I didn't. So it was neat. I think also um, when it's not just all laid bare and in your face, and I think movies are a lot more blatant about it than um, than novels are because movies are very visual and they got to kind of just shove it in your face and show it to you from the very beginning or because you're not inside the, the character's head. But I think that when it's subtle, 
there's sort of a um, a character discovery along the way. And there's a large part of reading enjoyment that comes from learning the character as you go, learning more about them. And so if you as the author already know these things, you already know what they're afraid of, you already know their history, that you already know what's driving it, but even the character maybe doesn't themselves, you're keeping it consistent along the way. But for the reader, it's a discovery. It's a character discovery. And maybe even the character is discovering along the way, too, of, of why they're doing what they're doing or whatever. And it's not the main plot, typically, but it's what adds texture and layer beneath the main plot. You know, I think about Jack and Jill, right, and their sibling rivalry, which is so over the top because, you know, assassins who are capable of killing each other and often want to. Um, but that emotional uh, imprinting from childhood, you know, the, the envy that Jill has, the, the, the desire to be better than everyone else because she was never good enough. These are very strong emotional uh triggers or, or pulls and their fears and and Holden calls her out on one of them in the second book and it makes her so angry because he tells her that she's afraid that maybe she'll find out that what she's afraid of is true that she isn't good enough that her her mother never really did love her and and you know she she just flies off the handle over it because when someone pokes you in your weakest spots that it, it hits those emotional triggers in you, right? But never in any of the books that came, the, the, the words that came before leading up to it, did it spell out, Jill is emotionally, uh, an emotional basket case and, and all over the place and, and, you know, doesn't even know what she wants half the time because she's afraid of these things. It's never spelled out. You just got this behavior from her that kind of makes sense in her own mind, but then somebody else nails what it is about her and the readers who get it, they'll get it. You know, it, it's going to be like this massive aha moment and others who don't, it's still going to add layers of depth to the, the conflict and the, the banter between the two of them. But it's this, this underlying fear that drives a lot of her really psycho behavior. Uh, this jealousy of her brother is based on the fact that maybe she really isn't worth loving. Hmm. And that is a deep, deep fear that most people wouldn't even know about themselves because it's just buried down there as it is with her. And that makes for a very conflicted, uh, just unusual, I guess, and not like that's what makes her an unusual character, but it, that's the type of thing that allows a character to just be like a Jill, you know? And it can show up in so many other ways, so many other characters. And, and that's where the subtleties of knowing those fears and not just coming right out and saying, here's Jill. She's psycho because <laughs> <laughs> I just letting, letting the reader discover it as the story progresses, you know? All right. We've got time for one more. One more. Okay. I got to find this one here. Okay. So um, this is quoted off Scott Meyer's uh, uh, feed, and it's from Larry Ferguson. 
And it says, characters should never enter. They should storm in. They should sulk in. They should tremble in. Create visual pictures. And what I find so fascinating about this is this is screenwriting advice, right? And screenwriting is a very visual storytelling medium. And when you write a novel, all that visual is mental. We're never going to see it outside of our own heads. I mean, unless a movie gets made, but even that's not going to be the same thing. And yet, you still need to do the same thing. You need to create that visual image in the writer's head, and not the writer, the reader's head, of characters who are doing visual things. So that's why you'll find these posts that, that online, like blog posts and stuff that are like, you know, here are 99 alternatives to the word walked, because, you know, he walked across the room and he walked here or walked there. And we do that because walking is like, that's the first word that comes to mind when we're trying to describe that particular activity, right? But it's not visual. It's almost like he said, right? Just our brains just move. We don't, we don't see someone walking, but we definitely see them skulking. We see them slinking. We see them shuffling. We see them, you know, dancing. All these different other ways to describe movement will give us a visual picture. And so that's what you want to do for your readers. You want to create those movies inside their heads and you do it with powerful verbs. Your character should never just enter a room, right? They should storm in, they should skulk in, they should, oops, I lost. (laughs) They should tremble in, create visual pictures. I like that. That's a good way to close this episode. So we will slink our way out after only 30 minutes this week. After uh, going a little bit long last week, we try and keep these episodes to around 30 minutes. Or less. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes Sometimes less so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's plenty more of these where they came from. So unless somebody sends us something fun, do our next episode with her. We're going to be going back to more (laughs) advice from other writers. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back again next Tuesday. See you guys next week. Thanks for being here.